0: Psalm chapter 6. It's Olympic season, so I thought we'd start off with two very contrasting stories between two very different athletes. On the left is someone you might be familiar with. His name is Ryan Lochte. Ryan's story begins, he's born in Rochester, New York. The parents, both of whom are swim coaches, and so of course Ryan takes up swimming at age 5. His family moves to Florida so his dad can take a new coaching job. And in high school, Ryan really starts to take swimming seriously, and he ends up winning gold in the Junior Olympics while in high school. He goes on to Florida to swim for the Gators, becomes a a champion swimmer there, and then enters his first Olympics in Athens. And then from there to Beijing and London and Rio, Ryan continues to win gold, and now he stands as the second most decorated male swimmer of all time, of course, Next to Michael Phelps. But then the guy on the right might be someone you're not as familiar with. His name is Brad Snyder. Five years ago, Brad was serving in the military in Afghanistan, and he was serving with an explosives disposal unit. And as he was out one day with a couple Afghan soldiers, the two Afghan soldiers with him stepped on an IED. And as Brad and the medic were rushing to go help their Afghan colleagues, Brad himself stepped on an IED. It would change his life. And Brad was airlifted to Walter Reed back in Washington, D.C., where 60, later, 60 hours later, he would wake up to what would become the worst day of his life. He was blind. The doctors eventually decided that rather than risking infection, they would remove his eyes and give him prosthetic eyes, thereby making permanent his blindness. And in many ways, Brad was a broken individual, suffering in ways that are completely unimaginable to us. Simple tasks like eating food off of a plate or picking out a shirt to wear, all of a sudden became so, so difficult. Brad says that when he dreams, he actually dreams as if he can see, like he used to. But every time he wakes up, the reality of his lifelong darkness crushes in back on him. But Brad, not one to let his brokenness and his sorrow overcome him, takes up swimming again, something he was pretty good at in college when he could still see. And so, with his seeing eye dog Gizzy watching over him, he starts working. He works to perfect his technique, he strives to get better and better. And so in 2012 in London, he goes to the Paralympics. And in the 400-meter men's freestyle, on the exact anniversary of his accident, exactly one year later, he wins gold. Now compare those two stories. Which one of them engages you more? Which one of them grabs your attention? Or maybe we could put it this way. Which one would Hollywood actually make a movie about? Why is it that we engage and connect with Brad's story? You know, one of the reasons is that we love stories of overcoming obstacles, of of there being triumph in the midst of tragedy, because it's in the midst of brokenness and suffering that victory seems all the more glorious. We have to have the contrast of the sorrow for the hope to shine all the brighter. One of these other reasons why we connect with Brad's story is because we can identify with it. Maybe someone with like Ryan Lochte, who had everything in his life perfectly lined up for him, maybe we can't identify with that. But someone like Brad Snyder is inspiring. If he overcame an obstacle like that, a disability like that, certainly so can I. This is why his story is inspiring to us. And so when we come to Psalm 6 this morning, we're, we're going to come to one who is suffering. To one who is broken. To one who is mourning. And we're, in call, we're called by the Scripture to engage in his story and to identify with him. Then, what we want to do this morning is resist the temptation to be like Job's friends when we come into Psalm 6 and we see one mourning in anguish, and we want to come in and just fix the problem, that's not what the Scriptures call us to do. But they call us to sit and to mourn with the psalmist. Because perhaps as we read, perhaps as we've read this morning already, you'll see reflections of yourself in Psalm 6. You'll identify the psalmist's grief with that of your own. And it's in that mourning, in that suffering of the psalmist, when we sit with him, when we identify with his grief, that the glorious hope at the end of the psalm shines all the brighter. And so as one person says about Psalm 6, he says, The psalm gives words to those who scarcely have the heart to pray and brings them within sight of victory. As we sit with the psalmist in his grief, as we mourn with him in our own struggles, It is through this darkness that God's hope and God's grace penetrate even more piercingly. But as we meet the psalmist this morning, we initially find him in this anguish. And it's this anguish that he feels that he suffers because of inner turmoil. As we look at the very beginning of the psalm, it's in the prison of his own mind, in the privacy of his own thoughts, that the psalmist feels crushed. So, if we can read together again these, this first stanza, the first three verses. Again, this is from the NIV, so the text is on the screen if you'd like to follow along. It says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? So we see in this first verse that the psalmist is fearful of God's rebuke, of his discipline, of his wrath, of his anger. We're not really given the reason why. Some people think perhaps it's because the psalmist has sinned, and he fears the repercussions of having failed or having broken God's law, but we're not really told. Perhaps he's fearful that even bringing this prayer request that he's about to in this psalm, He's fearful that bringing this request to the Lord will incur His judgment. We're not really told. But what we can clearly see is He is absolutely terrified of God's wrath and His rebuke of His discipline of His judgment. And we can identify with that. You know, at times we, we are fearful of God in the sense that we recognize that we haven't lived up to His standard. Yes, even as believers. We recognize that we fail Him. And we live our lives wondering when God is going to bring the hammer down on us for our failures. That for some of us here, God's compassion and mercy are completely eclipsed by the truth that He is also a holy judge. And so we cower before Him and we seek to avoid Him because we fear His wrath, we fear His rebuke. And there's hope for us that comes at the end of this psalm. The psalmist goes on to speak of having mercy on him because he's faint. And the idea here of being faint may may be the idea of withering, that just as a crop or leaves would wither when they're dry, when they're dying. So the psalmist, his angst is so deep and so intense that it's as if he's shriveling up on the inside. He begs the Lord to heal him because his bones are in agony. A lot of commentators think, that the psalmist is actually sick at some sort of physical illness. We're not totally sure about that. It may be true. But he uses this phrase, my bones are in agony. Kind of an odd phrase for us. Why does he speak of that? The phrase that his bones are in agony speaks to the depth, to the intensity of his suffering. And in his language would have been a metaphor for his entire being. In the Old Testament, you don't get as much of this idea that there's a separation between one's body and one's soul, between one's outer being and his inner being. And so when he says, my bones are in agony, what he's saying is, my entire being is suffering, both outer being, both inner man. Everything is in angst. You can see this because the next parallel phrase is that my soul is in deep anguish. And you and I recognize this. Stress, suffering, sorrow doesn't affect just the outer person. doesn't affect just the inner person. It affects both. We're whole beings. I mean, guys, this is why when you're like really freaked out and stressed about asking a girl on, an, on a date, what happens? Your palms get sweaty. Your voice shakes. Why? Because inner stress affects our outer person. Or take it the other way around. Stress on our body affects our spirits, Right? I mean, some of you are probably like me, that when I hit my head on an inanimate object, my immediate response is I get super, super angry, and then for me, for whatever reason, for the longest time, my immediate reaction is to try and punch whatever I hit. Why? Because pain, affliction of our bodies, affects our spirits. You can't separate them. Angst, suffering affects our whole being, and that's what the psalmist is saying. This sorrow is so deep, is so intense, that it has affected every part of who I am. It has penetrated every aspect of my being. And so he ends this stanza with this cry of desperation and exhaustion. How long? How long, God? I can't even find the words to express my grief. The only thing I'm concerned about is how long will this have to last? And some of us can identify with this. Some of us can identify with the internal struggles that he has. Some of us can know, know that we have experienced that same sort of grief and anguish in our innermost being. For me, in my, my, in my own history, beginning in high school, I really started to struggle with anxiety, with fearfulness. My family and I didn't recognize it as such as then. But I would live with fears and thoughts and concerns that would totally consume my mind, often just leaving me in total terror. Some of you know this. When sleep fades away and when sometimes you can't even eat because there's a fear that's gripping you. And sometimes the grip of that anxiety, that fearfulness is so tight that it literally feels like you can't even breathe. Yet some of you know what it is for your soul to be in anguish. For some of us here, we go through that silent affliction of depression. That darkness, that cloud that never seems to go away and the things that used to bring you joy like family and friends and recreation. Nothing can snap you out of that darkness and that gloom. And maybe well-meaning Christians have come to you and said, you just need to trust God and it will get better, right? And you try it and it doesn't work. And sometimes we suffer with this for so long, we wonder, can a spiritual person really experience that? Can, some, can a child of God really live in this darkness and depression for so long? Is that, is that even possible? And then we look back in history and we see other men who identify with the psalmist like Charles Spurgeon one of the greatest preachers of Christian history, who had regular bouts with depression. And this is what he says, an article that's written about him. Having been absent from his pulpit for three Sundays, when Charles Spurgeon returned, he preached on 1 Peter 1, six, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. In the sermon entitled, The Christian's Heaviness and Rejoicing, Spurgeon said that during his illness, during his depression, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. He goes on to say, Sometimes the Christian should not endure his sufferings with a gallant and a joyous heart, but sometimes his spirits should sink within him, and he should become even as a little child smitten beneath the hand of God. And so, yes, with Spurgeon, with the psalmist, we identify, do God's people go through these dark times? Do they experience long times of grief and anguish in their innermost being? Absolutely that happens. But there's hope. Maybe for you, you identify with that aspect of perhaps the psalmist suffering is a physical illness. For you or someone you love, watching them suffer... And people expect you to have it all together because it just affects your body, your soul. Is fine, right? But people don't understand that the physical pain actually crushes your spirit as well as your body. And for you, there's hope. Beginning in verses 4 and 5, we begin to get a glimpse of what this hope looks like, just a taste of it. The psalmist says, Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? Psalmist says to, asks God to turn, or really the idea is to return. He senses that God has abandoned him and begs for God to come back. And he begs God to save him, but notice on what basis he makes this request. He doesn't say to God, Save me because of the extent of my suffering. Not here. He doesn't say, save me because of how deep my distress is. He doesn't say, save me because of my righteousness. Rescue me because of my obedience to your law. What does he say? Save me because of your, save me because of your unfailing love, because of your steadfast love. God's steadfast love does not fail. No matter, no matter the depth of the suffering of the psalmist, His love doesn't fail. No matter if you can't see God's mercy and grace in the midst of His justice and your own suffering, God's steadfast love doesn't fail. No matter how dark the valley is, no matter, matter the intensity of your suffering, no matter if you can see a way out or not, God's steadfast love on you, believer, remains. His love is unfailing. The psalmist goes on to plead with God not to let him die. This is why he said, among the dead no one praises your name. He's fearful that his suffering is so intense it could even bring him to death. The version that you're reading may say, use the word shield. What does this mean? It's kind of an odd phrase. That from the grave he can't praise his name. Simply it's this. The psalmist believes that if he goes to the grave, if he dies, he can't worship and praise God on this earth anymore. The idea of Sheol is just grave or perhaps the realm of the dead. The idea is, God, if you allow me to die, I will not on this earth remember or worship you any longer. But it's not that Sheol or the grave is the end. It's not as if that's the end of his existence, because you remember later in the Psalms, in Psalm 139, what does the psalmist say? He says, even if I make my bed in Sheol, God, you are there, that even in death, even on death's door, God still has victory, God still has control, God is still over all. Then even after this brief outburst of joy and, stead- and God's steadfast love, the intensity of the psalmist's suffering drags him back under. And so we move to verses six and seven. It says, "I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with my weeping, and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow; they fail." Because of all my foes. And so it's not just inner turmoil that the psalmist experiences. It's not just inner anguish. But he suffers because of circumstances out, totally outside of his control. Here specifically his enemies. The oppression of his enemies has caused him this affliction. He uses this phrase that he floods his bed with his weeping. And the idea literally in the Hebrew is that he makes his bed swim in the volume of his tears. And when he says, I drench my couch with my tears, the idea there is literally that he dissolves or melts his bed with his weeping. He says that this happens to him when he's on his bed in the loneliness of the night when there's not the comfort of companionship of a spouse or a friend. It's in that loneliness when when despair often strikes us. He says that his eye has grown weak or wasted away, which could be a symbol of strength. Like when Moses was about to die, it said his eyesight had not failed. He was still a strong individual, but the psalmist now is saying, my eye has grown weak, I'm wasting away. He says it's because of his foes, because of his enemies. His enemies could be political enemies. They could be foreign people who have arrayed themselves against the psalmist. It's even possible, some have speculated, that if the psalmist is experiencing an illness, these people are those who could have been friends. Because in those times, you see, illness was often seen as a sign of God's judgment on a person for his sin. And so you remember this from the story of Job, right? When Job's so-called friends come in and they see that Job is sick and he's suffering, what's their conclusion? Well, you blew it, dude. You must have sinned against God for him to give you this affliction, right? And so perhaps that could be what the psalmist is facing here. That his sickness has caused those who used to be his friends to turn against him believing that he has Sin. And so it may not even just be that he's facing enemies. It may be that he's actually facing betrayal. And again, we understand this type of brokenness. We can identify with it. Of having foes, of conflict. Whether it's something as simple with a co-worker or a family member. There's anguish that happens when we're at enmity with other people. Again, Spurgeon helps us here because he faced much slander in his ministry, and he said, "Down on my knees have I often fallen, with a hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me, and in an agony of grief, my heart has been well-nigh broken. This thing hope I can say from my heart. If to be made as the mire of the streets again, if to be the laughing stock of fools and the song of the drunkard once more will make me more serviceable to my master and more useful to his cause, I will prefer it to all this multitude or to all the applause that man could give. Conflict. Maybe for you that circumstance outside of your control that causes you anguish is a child. One that you do weep over in the lonely watches of the night. One that perhaps, even though you love him or her, sees you as an enemy. And you can identify with the psalmist in this way. Perhaps you've experienced the pain of that betrayal by someone that you thought was a friend. Someone that you thought loved you. Maybe outside of your control there's been the loss of a job or a home or even of a loved one. And you can identify with this sense of weeping, of making your bed swim with your tears. So, what hope is there? Sat with the psalmist in his grief long enough. Probably didn't expect to come to the service this morning and have this cloud. So, you read Psalm 6, right? We sat with him in his grief long enough. Where can this joy be found? What causes this sudden change of attitude that happens in verse 8? He says, Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. And notice that the psalmist says the same truth three times, just in slightly different ways. The Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. God has heard the psalmist weeping and he has known his suffering. Even when he thought no one else could hear, no one else could understand, he's guaranteed that God has heard the sounds of his pleas. Even in the lonely watches of the night when it seemed that no one was there to comfort him, yet God heard and knew his suffering. And as some have pointed out, God's hearing in the Psalms, it's not like what we think. Just recognizing it and processing it through our ears. No, God's hearing ensures that He will act. This is why He's so confident about His enemies being pushed away, because God's hearing promises that He will act. Maybe not in the way that the psalmist expects or even desires. Maybe not in the timing that the psalmist would want. But God has promised that He would act for His glory and for the psalmist's good. He has hurt. Sorrow has been recognized by the Almighty who can actually do something about it. God hears. And when this grace, as one person has written, penetrates into the depth of an anguished soul, joy in the Lord anchors faith which no one can remove. God has heard. And so here's the idea from this Psalm. Here's what we want to take away this morning. As Matt has already mentioned, in steadfast love, God hears the cries of the broken. In steadfast love, God hears the cries of the broken. You know, most of us don't see the brokenness in each other's lives. A lot of times it's hidden away and so whether that's a silent suffering from anxiety from depression from fearfulness from an illness believer god has heard your cries god knows your suffering and he will act for his glory and for your good whether you feel attacked from the outside or betrayed Or sensing loss from something completely outside of your control. And you sob in the lonely watches of the night and wonder if anyone has heard. Yes, God Almighty has known and has heard and will act. Maybe not in the way you think He should. Maybe not in the timing you wish He would. But God will act in steadfast love. Church, God has set His steadfast love on you And it guarantees that He will hear your cries of brokenness and He will act. There's this beautiful picture in Exodus when the Israelites are languishing under the slavery of Egypt. And the Bible says that their cries reached God's ears. And it says that God heard and God knew. And what happens next? The world gets rocked. The plagues of Egypt. The Red Sea. This is what happens when God hears the brokenness of His people. God acts for His glory and for our good. Take heart. In steadfast love, God hears the cries of the broken. We identify with the psalmist. And we know that we're not the first to know this sorrow. Because there is one who has experienced every measure of grief that we've described. There is one who is called in the Old Testament a man of sorrows. This is why when he's in the garden and his soul is in anguish, and the Scriptures even say that as he was praying, his sweat seemed to be great drops of blood, he says this, this sounds like the psalmist. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He knows that anguish of soul. While his disciples are doing what? Dozing off. No one gets it. No one understands his pain. If you want to talk about one who, like the psalmist, feared God's rebuke, his discipline, his wrath, his anger, his judgment, speak of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, who all the while knew what was coming at the cross when he would experience the full measure of God's wrath for you and for me. He knows what it is to fear God's wrath. You want to talk about being broken. Jesus knew that his body would literally be broken for our salvation so that he could bring broken people to God for healing He knows what brokenness truly means. This is why Hebrews says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Jesus wept and mourned and prayed in tears as well, and God heard. We should point out that it's because of His death because of Jesus' brokenness that that veil between us and the presence of God has been torn open. So that now, again, as Hebrews says, we come boldly to the throne of grace where we find the sympathetic ear of a father who hears the cries of broken people. And standing before him is one who's interceding for us, not one who's unfamiliar with our brokenness and sorrow, but who has been tempted in every way as we have been. And together, this Father who hears our brokenness, and Jesus Christ, who's actually identified with and experiences it, hear our prayers and give us the presence of the Spirit for our comfort. Because of the Savior, because of His finished work, God hears the cries of the broken. In steadfast love, God hears the cries of broken people. So this morning, what will you do with your grief and your anguish, sorrow, things outside of your control? How will you help those around you, those who are suffering? Know that with the psalmist, it's okay to mourn. It's not an unspiritual thing to weep. That's okay. The psalmists do as well. They weep with you. But take heart that no matter how dark the days, no matter how deep the despair, that God hears because of his steadfast love. God hears and will act for his glory and for your good. Your cries have not fallen on deaf ears. God hears, he will act. Hold to this truth, declare it to others. Speak this truth to one another that because of His steadfast love, God hears the cries of the broken. Father, thank You that You hear our cries. Thank You that right now, even as we pray, Jesus Christ, the One who has identified with our sorrows, is interceding for us. Thank You that He knows our grief. You're not an unsympathetic God. Thank you that your hearing means you act for our good and for your glory. Thank you for your steadfast love that never, never leaves. Would you bring comfort to the weary? Would we be sensitive towards one another and declare this truth to each other that you hear and you act for your people? Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.